Good Friday. How can one describe such a day? The wrongdoing of all humanity putting to an end an innocent man, the Son of God. This is the story of Jesus' death by way of a cross, all in one moment bringing death to the bright light of our future. He never stopped loving us, and yet this is the incredible part of it. Our sin stopped his heart. Our sin drove the nails firmly in the hands of God. All along, these were the plans. We told ourselves that we were in control, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. The brutal beating, the inhuman flogging, the naked humiliation. Heaven watched and saw it all. Our rebellion, our guilt, our shame, erasing the very notion of reconciling us with God. Our sin and our debt, overcoming Jesus. Here is our king, obliterated. The enemy laughing, his plans unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of freedom rising. Now God's people are utterly broken. Behold the chains of mortality. Yes, this is what is true. We had heard the stories of old. The lost are found, the blind can see, the weak are made strong. But now we are witnesses to this reality. God is dead. We'd almost believed there is a way of redemption. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a peace beyond understanding. Now we know better. For us, we can say that God is encapsulated in this one realization. The single greatest sacrifice in human history is finished. How clearly we can see it. So what's so good about Good Friday? Just one thing, that the blood of Jesus can reverse the curse of sin and raise the dead to life. How clearly we can see it is finished. The single greatest sacrifice in human history encapsulated in this one realization. We can say that God is for us. Now we know better. There is a peace beyond understanding. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a way of redemption. We had almost believed God is dead, but now we are witnesses to this reality. The weak are made strong. The blind can see. The lost are found. We had heard the stories of old. Yes, this is what is true. The chains of mortality utterly broken. Behold, freedom rising. Now God's people are unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of the enemy laughing. His plans obliterated. Here is our King, Jesus, overcoming our sin and our debt, reconciling us with God, erasing the very notion of our rebellion, our guilt, our shame. Heaven watched and saw it all, the naked humiliation, the inhuman flogging, the brutal beating, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. We told ourselves that we were in control. All along, these were the plans firmly in the hands of God. 
Our sin drove the nails. Our sin stopped his heart. And yet, this is the incredible part of it. He never stopped loving us. The bright light of our future all in one moment, bringing death to death by way of a cross. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man putting to an end the wrongdoing of all humanity. How can one describe such a day? Good Friday. Good morning, church. Now, if that doesn't stir your soul, you might want to check your pulse. This is such a, uh, you know, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. That's why we meet on Sundays, because that's the day that Jesus was raised from the grave. But this is really the one that we come, we look forward to, we really come to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And he's given us a lot. Matter of fact, he's given us more than what we can ever comprehend. And so this morning... To engage you, I want you to be engaged with God. So what I want you to do now, like last week, this might make some of you feel a little uncomfortable, but if you've ever been in church, you might be aware of what we're going to do next. So I want you to stand with me. Everybody stand up. Hold your arms out like this. If you're a little uncomfortable out here, just bring it in right here. Nice and Southern Baptist-like. <laughs> Other than that, put your hands, turn your hands up to receive from the Lord. And now we are going to repeat together, it should be on the slide, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. The great thing about that prayer is that the disciples asked Jesus... To teach them to pray. It wasn't like they didn't know how to pray. They'd already been in the synagogue. They'd already watched the priests and the Levites. They'd watched the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They watched all of them step out and offer up these loud prayers to God that were kind of like a clanging cymbal or a banging gong. They, they sounded impressive, but they weren't from the heart. They were just recited. And then they saw John the Baptist and his disciples, and John had taught his disciples how to pray. And so all of a sudden the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, okay, here it is. This is how you should pray then. We've been reciting that prayer ever since. And I just want to encourage you 
that even right now, as we're starting to step into today's message on the resurrection, just to utter in your own heart, just say to God, teach me how to pray for revelation. And then ask God to reveal what it is he wants you to get today. Because he's got something for you. I know that because he got some, he's got something for me. And so this morning, we are here to celebrate the goodness of God, the greatness of God. Remember, the, the Jesus going to the cross on Good Friday was for God's glory and our good. Right? God's glory, our good. We're the recipients of the glory of Jesus that he brought to the Father. We're the recipients of the good that he brought to us. And so as we step into this, we're on our last talk about the glory road that Jesus was on. And as we're ta- thinking about Easter, I mean, this whole morning has just been kind of like a, a week long already. I mean, just the, the, the excitement, the things we've gone through already, having John's great message on the resurrection this morning out in the lawn and then coming together and having a meal together with each other and having fellowship and now worshiping our risen king. Now we come to hear what, what he has for us today. And so as you think about Easter, what do you think about? Now the obvious answer is what a lot of you are thinking right now. That Jesus is raised from the dead. This is Resurrection Sunday. And you're absolutely correct, 100% spot on. But did you know there are other people? They're out there thinking about Easter eggs, Easter baskets, Easter dinner. And all the preparation that goes into that, they might be thinking about some Easter gifts, Easter clothes. They think a lot about Easter, but not about Easter. They've got their thoughts on other things, and so they're thinking about all kinds of different things. And you know, over the last 15 years, as I have approached Easter Sunday, I can't shake the thought. Matter of fact, if you were to grab... um, the last probably five years of messages from Jesse on Easter, you would hear this thought repeated, the same same thought repeated differently every year. And it's this. For me, Easter represents hope. It's my hope. Paul told us that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The glory of Jesus brings me hope. The glory he gave to the Father gives me hope to know that I don't have to live as the guy that I've always lived as. I can live as the guy that God intended for me to be. And so as we go through this morning and we start talking about the resurrection of Jesus, I want you to know because of the resurrection of Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed. And before I get to that, and before I mention what happens, I, I, I want us to kind of think about this whole thing of hope. Because if you don't hope, have hope, you become hopeless. And hopelessness is the most devastating feeling or place to be in the entire world. When you are hopeless, you're defeated. It, it, it's, when you're hopeless, you say things like, I just feel like I'm stuck. I have no way out of my current situation. Being hopeless says nothing will change. I will never change. Or those that I'm stuck with 
will never change. There was, when I was a, a kid in, in um, elementary and junior high school, there was this day called the Day of Reckoning when you're in school. And that's the day that you get from all of your teachers a report card that you have to take home to your parents. And in my family, it wasn't any good to say, oh, they didn't hand them out today because I had three brothers and one sister who all brought their report cards home the same time I was supposed to. Now, the report card, what it did was it gave you an indication on how well you had a hold or a grasp of the subject that you were learning. And they calculated into that report card not just your ability to do well on tests, but how well you interacted in the classroom as well. So there were a couple of factors built into it. So they gave you a grade for whatever position, whatever place you were at as you were learning. And the brightest students that were my friends, they were A students. We were just friends. I myself happened to know that I'm average, and so I got a C. Once in a while, I could sneak out a B. Unless it was for P.E. or woodshop or lunch, then I got A's. <laughs> Down at the bottom of the report card was this letter F. And each one of these letters had a descriptive word beside it. So when the parents got the report card, they looked at the letter, they could correspond and find out exactly what that meant. The F stood for fail. But there was also two letters below failed or F on our report cards. I see. Incomplete. If you got incomplete, that means you didn't even um, complete enough work in the class to get a failing grade. You weren't that high. You were, you were in the um, tire rut looking up at the snake's belly. That's how low it was. And it was a bad deal. Now, I thought that that was always bad because, you know, when I'd bring my report card home, I had these high hopes that the teacher got me confused with some other student and gave me their letter grade. But then my hopes were dashed into reality when I saw my name and my letter grade, and I had to give that to my parents, and I knew what was coming next. More time in the house studying and less time outside messing around. A few years ago, my parents had both passed away, and so we started, as the kids of our family, we started to go through all of my mom and dad's junk that they'd collected from the years. And it's kind of crazy, some of the stuff that you collect over, you know, 50-some years of marriage, and all of a sudden you're going like, huh, I, why in the world would my mom have kept report cards from Elk River, Idaho, where she grew up as a little girl? I had no clue, but it was interesting because I learned something from that report card. On her report card, which was never on my report card, was another letter. That letter was the letter G. And it had a descriptive word right next to the letter G. Do you know what that descriptive word was? You're not going to guess it. I would never have guessed it. It was hopeless. Yeah, just think about that. You come home and, and you hand your mom and dad a report card and they've got the G there and they're going, what's the G stand for? Hopeless. 
hopeless. Now, I'm just telling you, for all of our educators in here today, you would just damage little Billy's psyche if you gave him a G. No, you cannot do that. Hopeless. Hopeless and hopelessness. You know, it, it's one of those things that when you have hopelessness and hopeless or, or hopelessness, those words bring to us a sense of despair, of being disheartened, of being beyond having any help that's going to come and rescue us. Who do we turn to? We're absolutely hopeless. That's what the teachers were saying about those kids. You got a G. Keep this kid at home because there's no help for this one. And if we were to give a report card out for the disciples Friday night after Christ died on the cross, we would have gone through all of the stuff, right? We would have gone, well, let's see. They were still arguing at the um, foot wash, at the, the Last Supper. They were still arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. One of them went off and betrayed. Jesus handed him over to be killed. Uh, another one swore he would uh, do anything for Jesus, and he denied knowing Jesus. When the guards showed up to arrest Jesus, they all scattered like cockroaches when the lights turned on. When it was time to be beside Jesus through his, his um, persecution and flogging and scourging and mockery and all the rest of that, they were not to be found. The women were hanging around, but no disciples, the twelve that followed him. When, when Jesus was taken to the cross, there was a, one, maybe two that showed up, and they watched from a distance. So when we take into consideration all that Jesus taught the disciples and all that was taking place, and then they saw Jesus die on the cross, and the body came down, and Joseph of Arimathea took that body, wrapped it up with the spices, and put it into a new tomb and rolled a stone across the face of it, and we would have gone to those disciples, and we would have looked at them, we would have gone, gee, Hopeless. Because that's exactly the way that they felt. Because they had this idea about who Jesus was going to be. I mean, right up... They're in the Last Supper just hours, 15 hours before Jesus is going to be crucified. And they're thinking, Jesus is here and he's going to set his kingdom here on earth. And this is going to be great. That's why they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Because they want to know who's going to be sitting at the right hand of Jesus when he establishes his kingdom on earth. And they're going like, who is it, Jesus? And Jesus goes, boys, haven't you been paying attention? I've been teaching you something for the last three to three and a half years. Pay attention now, fellas. And then he's dead on the cross, and they're like... And then they watched the, they watched the body being placed in the tomb on that stone slab where Jesus was laid, all wrapped up. And they're hopeless. What do they do? They run off and hide because they're afraid... That those same guys that crucified Jesus are now going to come and grab these guys. And that's where we pick it up because Friday, they buried Jesus. Saturday, the day of Sabbath, the seventh day, my thought, my theory, Jesus was obeying the Sabbath and he was resting. He did a lot of heavy lifting on the cross. So he took the Sabbath and took a rest. And then on Sunday, Sunday 
morning. I don't know what time. It was long before anybody else woke up, but Jesus was resurrected to life, and that's where we're going to pick it up. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon people and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Can you imagine? Here's Mary. We've, we've got this whole thing with Mary going on, okay? Because Mary Magdalene is a woman in whom Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. You want to talk about somebody that was set free? That woman knew what it meant to be set free. She knew what it meant to have her life back. She knew what it meant to be loved by someone other than just for being a woman. Truly, deeply loved her, and that was Jesus. She's the one that took an alabaster jar full of perfume and anointed Jesus' feet with them. She's the one that loved Jesus deeply and muchly. And she's the one that goes to the tomb. Now, there could be a little bit of confusion if you have read all four of the Gospels about the resurrection. In, in one place, you're going to find that it says, like here in John, it says that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. But if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to find that it's, it's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, Mary the, the mother of Jesus, Salome, Joanna. I mean, there's a whole list of these women. And so you can get a little bit confused if you get caught up in the minutia of, of who are all these women. The fact is, is that each one of these gospel writers indicated that these women were followers of Jesus. Therefore, they're the ones that showed up. And, and my theory is this, is that Mary Magdalene, because of her love relationship with Jesus, and I'm talking about agape, philios, and sorge, love, she loved him so deeply, she's the one that's leading the rest of the ladies on the charge down to the tomb to, to anoint Jesus' body with oil and continue the burial process for Jesus. So that's why she's mentioned by John. But she gets down there, and what does she find? She finds that the stone is rolled away, but it doesn't tell us she went in, but she must have been able to see enough into the tomb where she said the body is not there. Maybe she drew the conclusion because the, the stone is rolled away that it's, it's all gone. And so she heads back, runs back to the disciples to inform them that they have taken Jesus' body out of the tomb and she has no idea where that body is. Now, were the other women running with her? I can't imagine myself seeing Mary, the mother of Jesus, pulling up her robe and running back to the disciples. I think that the other Marys and, and Salome and Joanna probably were consoling Mary because can you imagine Mary's grief in all of this? She watched her son die. She watched him be put in the grave. And then she comes on the day that they can come back to the burial with the burial spices. And here's the grieving mom whose heart is broken about all that her son went through. And she walks up and she finds her, bo her son's body missing. How much more grief is she bearing at this moment? And so the other sisters that are with her walk her back to where the disciples are. Mary Magdalene runs back. And she tells 
Peter and John that the body's missing. So here's what happens. Verses 3 through 9. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached, who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, but that he must rise from the dead. All right, let me just hit uh, one little side note, bunny trail. Peter and John are running to the tomb. Peter takes out of the house like a shot out of the cannon for about 50 yards. He's a fullback. John is a wide receiver. And he's down to the tomb before Peter can even get halfway there. And so he's standing there looking in. And of course, Peter, he comes rolling in, but he can't put the brakes on very fast. So he just kind of, he accidentally bowls over John and rolls into the tomb. That's my version of it. <laughs> so now we have, we have these two guys right here. And, and what I want to do right now is I want to pull out four similar things from all four Gospels for us to take a look at today that revive the hope of the disciples. Remember, they're sitting at home right now, sucking their thumbs and crying because everything is hopeless. But God has this great plan in store for them. There are these four events or four different things that happened, events that generate hope in the hearts of the disciple. All four of them, we find them in all four Gospels. The first, they are this. I'm going to give you all four of them, then we'll go back and, and talk about them. The stone was rolled away. There were angels. The tomb was empty. And it was the women who followed Jesus who were the eyewitnesses to all of this. And that is where hope is born. Now, all those who were following Jesus as his disciples, the men and the women, had created a hope in Jesus that wasn't the hope that Jesus had explained to them in the Gospels. They had created a different Jesus. They had manufactured their own thought of who Jesus was going to be. You wanna, you wanna, I'll tell you what kind of Jesus it was. It was the dashboard Jesus. All it was was this plastic little icon of Jesus that they stuck to the dashboard of their chariot that wobbled back and forth as they hit all the bumps. Because that's as good as that Jesus was going to be. The one that they manufactured in their own heads wasn't going to do what Jesus said he was going to do. And so what the, the, the manufactured Jesus they had was the Jesus that was going to establish his kingdom rule here on earth right now. He was going to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to take control of everything. And all the disciples that were with him were going to become his cabinet ministers. And they were going to rule together over the entire world. That is the picture that they had of Jesus 
when they found out that he was Messiah, when they identified him as the Messiah, when they worshipped him as the Messiah, was he the Messiah? Yes, but they had created a different Messiah than what Jesus actually was. And so the day that, that Jesus died on the cross and he was buried, all their hopes and dreams are laying in the tomb dead. Their Messiah is dead. And now they're hopeless. In Mark's gospel, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus told his disciples in each one of those chapters, the elders will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me, and after three days I will rise. Three consecutive times Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and then I'm going to be raised to new life. I'm going to be resurrected. He told them that three times. And yet when Jesus died on the cross and he was buried, they're going like, now what do we do? We're totally screwed because our hope is lying in the tomb dead. They had no idea about who Jesus really was. They had no clue as to what Jesus was going to do. They had no grasp of the reality of who the Messiah was. They had created their own Jesus and he was dead in the tomb. And here's the reality of it. If you don't have the Jesus of the Gospels, your Jesus needs to die and stay dead. If you've created something in your mind that doesn't match up with who Jesus is, if you think because you pray a prayer and you ask Jesus to give you a new wife, a new house, and a new Corvette, that he has to do that. You've got a dashboard Jesus, and you need to peel that sucker off your dashboard and throw him out the window doing 80 miles an hour down the freeway and hope you don't get picked up for littering. Because, because that's all that Jesus is worth. If you've manufactured a Jesus in your mind other than something about who Jesus said he was going to be, you're going to be just like the disciples. You're going to be filled with hopelessness. You will feel lost. You will feel confused. You will feel like you have no place to go, nowhere to hang out, and no hope for the future. Because that Jesus has to die. So when those... Ladies, walk up to the tomb when Mary Magdalene and the rest of the women walk up to the tomb and they look and they don't see him. That is the first seed of hope planted in the hearts of the disciples. The tomb is empty. The dashboard Jesus is dead. That's the first sign of hope at Easter is the manufactured Jesus has to die so that the real one can live. The second event that generates hope for the disciples and for us is that the stone was rolled away. Mary Magdalene, uh, in every one of the Gospels, you go and you will find the stone rolled away. Either there's an angel like in Matthew, there's an angel sitting. It says that in Matthew that, that there, the earth shook because the angel came and stepped down on earth and rolled the stone away. The earth shook when the angel touched the ground. I'm telling you right now, that angel, he's got some wow to him. 
He's got the wow factor going on. And I'm going to tell you right now, when he walked up to roll that stone away, he didn't put his back into it and push as hard as he could. He walked up and he put his finger on the side of one little, of the side of the stone and he went like this. And that thing, whoop, rolled right over. And then he crawled up on top of it. Maybe he flew up there. You know, you can use your imagination. He's sitting on that stone in the book of Matthew. But here in, in the gospel of John that we're looking at, he, Magdalene, Mary Magdalene comes up to the grave and she can see it, that the stone is gone. Now, you know, sometimes when we read through these stories about Jesus, specifically the resurrection, we can get so caught up in the story. And if you're checking out some of the other gospels about the same story, because where the angel in Matthew, where he came down and, and, you know, kind of lit things up there, all of the guards passed out because they were so afraid. And then there's two angels and another one and they're sitting inside the tomb and we get all, and, and we're thinking about the, the stone that's been rolled away. And we might be thinking, we just might be thinking that the reason that the stone was rolled away was so that Jesus could get out. But let me tell you something. If death couldn't hold Jesus in the grave, a stone's not going to keep him from coming out of the grave. The reason the stone was rolled away was so that Mary Magdalene and the other women who came to the grave early in the morning could look in and behold that Jesus was gone. He had done what he said he was going to do. It was for their eyewitness. It was for their benefit that the stone was rolled out of the way so they could take a look and go like, He's gone! But they looked in and they went, Oh, he's gone. Tragic. Now, I want to point out a couple of other things about this with you. Because when, when we read this, it says that, that John, when, he walked, when Peter went right in, Peter took a look around and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, you, when you walk into a, a tomb and you see the burial clothes, there's, there's some contrasting that's going on here. Because just a couple weeks prior to Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus was visiting. He had to go and visit Mary, Mary Martha, and Lazarus. But the bad news is, is that Lazarus was dead. He got really sick and the sisters called for Jesus to come. It was only like a half a mile away. And Jesus waited till Lazarus died and had been in the tomb for four days. Four days. And then Jesus walks up and he has this interaction with the sisters. And what he does is that it says that when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to the other men standing there, unbind him and let him go. I want you to get the picture of the difference between someone who is resurrected by God as the Son of God and someone who the Son of God called back to life. The difference is the one who's called back to life has his arms 
across his chest like this. His legs are tight beside him. And he might have a little slit where his eyes are as he comes walking out of the tomb. Not very fast. And he could fall over any moment because there's no balance. And Jesus had to tell the guys that are standing there. I mean, why did Jesus even have to tell them? Like, they're all going like, look at that. He might fall over. Gosh, his arms are all tied up. He can't even see where he's going. Oh, that must hurt. And Jesus said, come on, fellas. Go unbind him. Let him be free of the death clothes. Peter and John were right there, and they saw it all with Lazarus. And now they come down to the tomb, and they look into the tomb, and they're lying right where Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus' body, right there with all the linen clothes and the spices. Right there, those clothes are still laying exactly as if the body were in them, but it looks like what happened is the body was evaporated through the linen clothes and they hadn't moved one iota. They were exactly the same as if the body had been in there, but nobody's in there. Something happened. It was different than coming out of the grave. This was a resurrection thing where the power of God came on Jesus and gave him a new body that wasn't confined to the, to the death clothes. He was free from it. And then you have that head shroud that was folded up neatly and laid over here beside it. There's a hidden message in that that you wouldn't pick up if you weren't a good Jewish boy growing up in a Jewish home. Because in the Jewish home, when they would serve a meal, much like what we had this morning, and maybe we should have practiced this this morning, we should have served all the men first. Guys, you're throwing me under the bus. There was no hearty amen. Baconators, come on. But in the Jewish home, as the kids were growing up, they would serve the men either first or in a separate room. Men and women didn't eat together. And so the women would serve the men, then they'd have their meal afterwards. And during that time, the patriarch of the family, sitting at the table, he comes in, and he sits down. The food is served. It's been blessed. And they start to eat. But because he's the patriarch of the family, there are things, people knocking on the door, servants coming in from the field saying, hey, what about this? And so there are oftentimes he was up and down from the table and leaving and going off. And then the servant would walk in and look at where the master was sitting at his place. And they had devised a way so that they knew not to take the master's plate away unless he was done eating. If the master of the house got up and took his napkin and laid it either on the plate or right next to the plate in a heap, that meant to the servant that was serving the food, when they came back in, they would look at the heaped napkin and they'd go, he's still eating dinner. I'm not touching any of his stuff. He's coming back for more food. And so that's the way they would check. If they came by and they looked, and that napkin that was on his lap that he would wiped his face with in his hands, if it was folded up very neatly and placed off to the side over here, away from the rest of the dinner plates, the sign of that to the servant was, I'm finished. I'm not eating anymore. Everything is done. I am finished. So when Peter and John 
They go into the tomb. They see the grave clothes here. And they see this thing folded up over here like a napkin at the dinner table. They're going like, that reminds me of my dad when I was growing up. That's what my dad used to do when he was finished. And all of a sudden they went like, it is finished. There's no more. And, and that, for them, was the part that started to rebuild hope in their lives. Rebuild the hope that they had lost. It, and the way we know that, it says in those verses right there that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Jesus left them a little note with no writing on it. He put it right there in the tomb. So when those two boys walked in, they both went, I believe. Just like we sang this morning, I believe. That's what they said, I believe. Moving on to the third event that generates hope. And that is the angels. And I'm going to jump to Matthew 28, 5 through 7. But the angel of the Lord said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he, he has risen. And he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee where you will see him. See, I have told you. The message of the resurrection to the disciples, particularly to the disciple women of, of Jesus's, was this. It was really simple. Come and see, go and tell. That's the call of Jesus every, work, every week in this church. Every Sunday in this church, Jesus is calling you to come and see him for all of his glory, for all the fullness of who he is. And then when you've received from him, the, the manifest presence of Jesus has, has shown up in your life and you have received from him, then he says, now go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. When, when some of the disciples were being called by Jesus, one brother went to his other brother, I think it was going to Andrew, and his brother said to Andrew, he said, come and see, we have found the Messiah. And then Jesus tells Andrew later on, go and tell. So that's the message that we get about Jesus, is that we come and see him for who he really is, not the dashboard Jesus, not the manufactured Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible we come and see, and once we have seen Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his manifested glory, then we go and tell. That's the message that the angels have brought to these disciples. And here's where Jesus really blows things up. Because the disciple, the Mary Magdalene is told, come and see, go and tell. And as she turns around to walk out of the tomb area, 
all of a sudden there's a man standing there and the Bible says that she didn't recognize him to be Jesus in, in the Gospel of John. And, and Jesus asked, uh, said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they have taken and moved my master's body. And she's thinking Jesus is the gardener. So can you tell me where they have laid him so that I can go and take care of his body? And Jesus says, Mary, Mary. And at that moment, her eyes were opened and she beheld Jesus in all of his glory. And what did she do? She fell to the ground and grabbed his feet and worshipped him. When you come in contact with the real Jesus, after you have come and seen the real Jesus, you will fall on your face in worship of him. Then you will get up and you will go and tell. And that's exactly what she did. Now, it's really interesting in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Oh, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to go back. And just talk about this. You know, they. Mary Magdalene was the one that was ushering in the new era of God in Christ, the resurrection. She's the first one that saw him. Jesus didn't go. This is the crazy part to me because who hung around with Jesus the most? Peter, James, and John, the three inner circle guys. You would think that Jesus would call Peter, James, and John to be the first ones to behold him in all of his glory. But it wasn't. It was this woman, Mary Magdalene, who had been released from seven demons that Jesus appeared to first. The craziest part about that is that in the first century Israel and Roman times, a woman had no validity as a witness. If four women saw something happen over here that was horrible and they got it all right, they were the eyewitnesses to it and there was another guy who's a buddy of the guy that committed the crime and he says, hey, you need to come in court and testify on my behalf that I wasn't there. And these four women saw this guy do it. They could describe him perfectly. They could tell exactly what happened. They could say, here's what he stole from the man that he robbed and killed. In a court of law, those four women's testimony would not be viable. They wouldn't even get a chance to testify because their testimony meant nothing. And so what does Jesus do? He validates women. The first person he sees coming out of the grave is a woman. The first person he lets embrace and worship him is Mary Magdalene. She's the one that brings the first witness of the risen Savior. She is a woman. God validates women. If you as a woman don't feel you're validated, I want you to know, I want you to hear me. Jesus validates you by the witness of the women. And so it's the empty tomb of Jesus that gives us hope. Hope in the here and now. Hope in the there and then afterwards. And don't get the idea that the hope that I'm talking about is kind of a hope-so kind of hope. Not at all. Not on your life. I'm talking about the hope-so kind of, the no-so kind of hope. No-so kind of hope. I know it for show kind of hope. This hope is the hope that says that everything is different. Everything has changed. Nothing will ever be the same. It's the hope that you only find validity for your life in, in Christ Jesus. 
So my question is, where is your hope? The last event of hope of the resurrection is the testimony of the women. And we're going to move to that right now. And I've already said that Jesus showed himself. Now let me, let me take you to Luke 11 or Luke 24, 10 and 11. It says, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles about the risen Savior, about the tomb being opened, about the angels being there. They told everything that they, everything that they witnessed, they told to the disciples. Now, look here. <laughs> Here's how, what the apostles thought. But these words seemed to be idle tale, and they did not believe them. They, they kind of equate these women to being in a... Not to slam on any of you who are in a crocheting club or a knitting club. But the idle chit-chat could go on at one of those events. I'm not saying it does because I've never been there. And I think if I went there, I'd get stoned. But I'm just saying from what I've heard from other women, on the witness of women, I'm just trying to cover my tracks here because I can feel the bus starting up and I'm going to get run over. All right, I'm good. But what I want you to understand is that the, the disciples, the ones that, that we would have thought Jesus would have gone to and talked to first, he talked to these women, and their response, even after what they heard in, in 8, 9, and 10 of Mark, that Jesus must die and then be raised to life. When they come in and they say, the, we saw the angel, we saw where Jesus laid, the angel said, Jesus is risen, and, and we met Jesus in the garden, and we kissed his feet, and we worshipped him, and the disciples, the 11 apostles, they're going like, Grief has overtaken you. You're just seeing things. Ridiculous. Matter of fact, if you go into Luke chapter 24, and I want to encourage you to read this, it, it's a little section, and it's entitled The Road to Emmaus. That's a great read. I, I've done an Easter sermon on that once before, and I'll probably do it again sometime soon, like next year. So if you want to know what it's about, come back next year. Um, but so these two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to a village not far away from Jerusalem. And what happens is that the resurrected Jesus shows up and starts walking with these two dudes as they're walking down the road and, and they're looking really sad and they're talking and they're kind of grief stricken. And Jesus looks at him and goes like, hey, okay, now, why are you guys so sad? Why are you so downcast? Why are you like so grief stricken? And they both look at each other and they go like, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what has taken place on this weekend? Did you not hear about the Messiah who suffered under our elders and our spiritual leaders and was crucified by Pontius Pilate and was nailed to the cross and was buried? And Jesus goes, well, tell me about it a little bit, would you? And so they start explaining everything. And it says, some of, it says this in 22 through 27. Moreover, some, of our, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And, and when they did not find his body, came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And 
Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Now, here's the thing. Even when there is this unbelief, Jesus embraces unbelief. I want you to get that. Because if I were to give unbelief another word, I'd call it being skeptical. Skeptical is different than being cynical. Skepticism says, I need more evidence so that I can believe. A cynic says, I have all the evidence I need and I know exactly what it says, but I refuse to believe. Here we have some skeptics. And it says in verse 28 through 32, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and he was at the table with them. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn with us within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? You see what Jesus did with those skeptics? They, they didn't believe on the road. They didn't believe. And so what did Jesus do? He gave them evidence from the scriptures to help them in their unbelief. And he lit a fire in their soul that got them ignited on the hope of the reality of who Jesus is. Let me just give you a taste of what Jesus told them on the road to Emmaus. Starting in the book of Exodus. And I'm going to name the book after each thing I tell you. The Christ is the Passover. This is what Jesus is saying to these disciples. The Christ is the Passover lamb in Exodus. The Christ is the anointing sacrifice in Leviticus. Christ is the smitten rock in Numbers. The Christ is the prophet to come in Deuteronomy. The Christ is the sheep that was led to slaughter in Isaiah. The Christ is the branch of righteousness in Jeremiah. The Christ is the plant of renown in Ezekiel. The Christ is the stone that smote the image in Daniel. The Christ is the ideal Israel in Hosea. The Christ is the hope of the people in Joel. The Christ is the heavenly husband in Amos. The Christ is the Savior in Obadiah. The Christ is the resurrection in life in Jonah. The Christ is the restorer in Micah. The Christ is the publisher of peace in Nahum. The Christ is the anointed one in Habakkuk. The Christ is the mighty one to save in Zephaniah. The Christ is the desired one of all nations in Haggai. The Christ is the headstone of the house of God in Zechariah. And the Christ is the son of righteousness healing in his wings in Malachi. He's telling these guys all this stuff about who he is. And then when he breaks the bread and blesses it, boom, all of a sudden all that stuff he told them came flooding in to reality in their life. And their hope was restored that the Christ was with them. The good news for us today, and I'm done here shortly, like in 35 or 40 minutes. (laughs) The good news for us today is that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago is the same power that is in the Holy Spirit that resides in our hearts. The manifest presence of Jesus is the power that ignites your life so that you no longer want to sin. 
It's not that you have to quit sinning. It's that God has placed a desire in your heart that you no longer want to sin. And when you sin, you feel sick about it because that's the Holy Spirit saying like, puke that crap out of yourself because that is no good. And we get this spiritual heaves and we spiritually vomit all that nasty stuff up and we look at God and we go, forgive me. And He says, you're forgiven. And we keep going on because the power of the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in us to live in righteousness and holiness of Jesus. Thank you. In Romans 5, 2 through 5, it says, Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not that... Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. Do you get that? There is a progression of things, of events that take place in your life when Christ is the king of glory in your life. You will find that you will have suffering. But you know that suffering produces endurance in your life. Because you are no longer going about it by yourself. You no longer walk the road of suffering alone. You have some, someone who's going before you and someone who's coming behind you. You have someone who's walking beside you and hovering over you. And that is called the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ gave to us. And after we get endurance, we have it produces character. And the character it's talking about is the character of God that's produced in our lives by the Holy Spirit. And that character is the virtues that other people see in our lives and they want us to know. We came and saw, we go and tell about the character of God that's living in our hearts. And then we have the hope. <laughs> and man, that is blessed hope for every day. You wake up every morning and you, before your feet hit the cold floor in your house, you thank God for the hope of Jesus that goes before you and with you in every activity of your day. Jesus is our hope because of the resurrection. I'm going to finish with this, Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, get this, Believe in your heart. Understand it. Look at it. Listen to it. it. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I just want to say this. I can't go without Resurrection Sunday, without Easter Sunday, without the, the first day of the week of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who brings hope into every crummy situation of your life that if you have not believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth about the resurrection and the glory of the king of glory you need to do it today you will find freedom you will be just like mary magdalene who was released from the bondage of seven demons you will find that you are released from the demons of your life and Jesus will walk with you wherever you go. There isn't any place He won't go with you. There isn't anything you can't tell Him. There isn't any problem that He cannot solve because He is resurrected to full glory.
what we're going to do now, I'm not even going to pray. Because I want the Holy Spirit to do the work in your life. I don't want... What I want to do is I want to move to why we're here. We're to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Jesus told us in first... Or he told Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it says this. For I received from the Lord what I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which I do for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, here's the, here's the good news I want to share with you this morning. That in Romans 10, if you just this morning decided that, you know what? I need to confess Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. I, I believe that he died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. And I need him to forgive me of my sins. And you just simply say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. He will usher himself into your presence and make you his child. That is what the requirements are for when we come around the communion table. Now this morning, if you're looking at our table up here, you're going and saying to yourself, that doesn't look normal. You get an A for observation this morning. No G's, just A's. And what we're going to do in just a minute is I'm going to have the people who are going to help serve communion, they're going to come up here and they're going to be in twos. And so one person is going to receive a bowl like this and we're going to put the juice into the bowl. And when they come, when you go up to, to the person that has the bowl, do not drink it. No backwashing. What we want you to do is we want you to take a piece of bread, and this is gluten-free. We want you to dip it into the juice and eat the bread at the same time. Now, we're going to have four different stations. We're going to have one set up right here. There's going to be one there. There's going to be one back there. They're going to slide that barn door open so you can go back there, and there will be one back there. Uh, People that are going to help to serve are going to come forward. I'm going to pray. We'll go to our stations. When you're ready, you come and you break a piece of bread, you dip it, the bread representing Christ's body, you dip it in the grape juice representing Christ's blood, and then you eat it. It's on you. This is for you. It's you and your family and God. So those who are helping serve, if you just come forward at this time.